Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. This finally breaks the seal on the NBA regular season. I've talked before about how I don't like getting into that too early because it's just so prone to overreactions. That's why I did the podcast with Sam Vecini and Dan Feldman. And a great guy to talk to about the first part of the year is Ben Golliver of Sports Illustrated. National writer, has a lot of perspective. And so really the way that we had this conversation was talking about the teams that surprised us and the teams that interested us. So, you know, we start out with with the LA franchises, but we bounce all around the league, talk about a lot of people. And if you are interested in specific things, you can check out the timestamps. They should be in the description. However, you're listening to this because I, I work on a podcast like this to make sure that you have that at your disposal. And it's also exciting that this is, I believe, the first Real GM Radio episode that has two sponsors, has Blue Apron, fantastic food delivery service. You can go to blueapron.com slash realgm to get three meals for free, including free shipping, and also Audible. You can get a free audiobook with your trial of that amazing service. If you audiobooks and so many other great things in, in that world, you can go to audible.com slash try now to do a free trial and also get a free audiobook. And the conversation with Ben runs about an hour, which is shorter than usual for us, but I really did like where it got into, and we went in a lot of different directions, but an informative, interesting, and fun conversation like they always are with him. Hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. My pleasure, Danny. Feels like it's been a, a while, but probably hasn't been, what, more than six weeks or so, but it feels like a lot's happened. Yeah, it, it does. And I, I felt like when you're about two weeks into the season, there are a lot of different things that people can see, but you can't necessarily have watched everybody. So I wanted to start with an open floor to you of your kind of most significant takeaway from this point in the year. Well, people are going to think I'm a Southern California hack for saying this, but I actually think both the Clippers and the Lakers are like right near the top of the most interesting stories uh, of the season. I mean, I would put the Warriors in that conversation too, just because we're always going to talk about them. And I think probably the Cavaliers are the most under-discussed big story in terms of, you know, how good they've looked coming back, you know, no real title hangover at all. Uh, but I think with, with both the Clippers and the Lakers, you've got a lot going on. I mean, with LA, the def- uh, with the Clippers, the defense has just been superb. Blake's back. I think they're still kind of figuring things out on offense, but their bench looks a little bit better uh, compared to last year. The pieces fit a little bit better, and then they're just super focused. And then you look at the Lakers, and it's like this fun house that I really don't think too many people expected. And, uh, you know, despite the loss to, to Dallas last night, and they've got a lot of positive takeaways. I mean, they're getting quality minutes from guys like Nick Young. And when that's happening, you know there's been a real big-time like culture change uh, within that locker room uh, and just within the franchise as a whole. Something that I believe you and I discussed at some point last year was the kind of the attribution of explanation, blame, whatever you want to call it, for last year's Lakers team. And one of the big questions was, you know, how much is that Byron Scott? How much is that just everything going on with Kobe and everything else? And one of the theories that was floating in the ether was the idea that just that overall situation was dragging down players. They were playing below their capabilities. And while eight games is not exactly enough to make that determination, it's more even just a feel when you watch the Lakers. It looks like a weight has been lifted. Yeah, and it's, it's funny because it's been a gradual development with them. Like, I went to the opening night game they had against Houston. They ended up losing that game. And there was still, like, a Kobe fatigue just in the air of the building. Like, all the people who were at the game were wearing Kobe jerseys. They do the, like, pregame introductions. There's no Kobe anything. And everyone's just kind of, like, stunned, like, whoa, wait, who are these highlights of? Like, what are, who are you even looking at here? Uh, and I think that pretty quickly after that, though, uh, the new reality has kind of set in. And people have made a lot of, uh, you know, uh, headlines here locally for the little changes. Like, they have a smoke machine. They never used to have a smoke machine. So it's kind of this younger, uh, more fun environment around the team. And, you know, it's different. It's like cheering for the Blazers a couple of years ago or cheering for the Suns when they had that unexpected run, you know, kind of built around some younger pieces where uh, there's nothing to lose and there are no major egos or, or personalities kind of standing in the way of things. And I'm absolutely of the opinion that the way Byron Scott handled those young players last year submarined their ability to uh, perform to their capabilities. It was most obvious with his you know, treatment of D'Angelo Russell. That was something I wrote on the very first game of last season uh, was just how that was not going to work for him. And then I think even more so, and, you know, I'll color myself guilty on this one, is a guy like Julius Randle looked pretty much useless last year under Byron Scott, and he's been off to a much stronger start this year. He sounds and looks like a different player. He looks like he's got a, a potential future, you know, as an impact guy. 
And I know over the summer we talked about him as someone like, well, should they be trying to move him to the bench? Should they try to decrease his role? Is he one of these guys who maybe, you know, is on his way to being, you know, strongly de-emphasized because defensively he's got some issues and positionally, you know, he doesn't really stretch too much at that four spot. Uh, but they've been able to kind of turn him loose, get him out in transition, take advantage of his uh, you know, physical tools and athleticism. Uh, and so I think if you're kind of trying to circle one player maybe as you know the quintessential turnaround from Byron Scott to Luke, I'd probably point to Julius Randle right now. Yeah, especially because D'Angelo Russell hasn't played super well yet. You know, this isn't a situation where you're, you're sitting there getting the maximum out of every guy, and that's part of what is heartening about the Lakers beyond the overall picture, which of course should be, is that it's not like they're peaking with everyone at the same time and you just feel like there's a regression right away. Like, there are certain parts of this that are going to get exploited, you know, when you face better opponents and everything like that. Like, that, that's just a part of this. But Randall went from being kind of a man without a country positionally to kind of fitting a couple of different roles you know like I think that they've been able to use him in more of a switch happy system he's done a better job on that than I ever expected and offensively he's starting to cultivate a niche for himself and so that is what you are looking for with young players is the idea that we always know with with I mean it's always the hope at least that with young guys that they're work in progress and so you have to improve by enough to prove your relevance and it looks like so far that he's done that. Yeah, and I think let's give credit to Luke Walton, right? I mean, is there any player on that roster who you feel like he's not getting the most out of right now? I mean, other than Russell, who probably, you know, just based on sheer youth and inexperience, like obviously he's got more uh, coming. But in terms of the roles that he's crafted for everybody from the veterans and and some of the malign signings from the summer to uh, these younger prospects, uh, everybody is basically thriving uh, either you know achieving to what you would expect or overachieving, and when that happens, I think you got to give the coach a lot of credit. Uh, and you know they are really speaking highly of him. I mean, even a guy like Jordan Clarkson, who you think, well, you know, he gets paid, so now he kind of comes into a situation. Maybe his role is different this year. Maybe it's not quite what he expected. And that might have been a tough sell from Luke in terms of kind of you know moving him to the bench. And yet he is at practice telling the reporters, I'm ready to run through a wall for Luke Walton, you know? So it's like, well, I mean, that's the sign of good coaching. And you know, the Lakers, who knows what their ceiling really is, but they fall in that category to me of a team where the whole right now is, is better than the sum of the parts. And I think that is not something at all you could have said about the Lakers last year, especially with Kobe being there, especially with Byron Scott kind of, you know, pushing guys in ways that were just completely not effective. And I jokingly called uh, the other day, I call Luke Walton like the millennial whisperer. Like, I think he's got a real talent communicating with some of these younger players. And we've seen first-time coaches, whether it's like Derek Fisher, Brian Shaw, some of these other guys in recent years, struggle to do that or, or try to do it, make a real point of trying to do it publicly and just fail miserably. And I think it just comes very naturally to Luke. And, and that's really been one of the keys for their early success. Something else to watch with the Lakers and a couple of these other teams with new coaches is how they handle closing lineups and handling guys that are less effective. And Luke Walton also deserves a lot of credit for being willing and able to go away from the expensive guys at the end of games if it's not working. You know, Mozgov hasn't finished games. There have been games with that Wal Dang didn't finish. And that is to everyone's credit. You know, sometimes it helps when a team is outperforming expectations. You don't hear as much of that grousing and everything else. And also Mozgov and Dang aren't exactly the type of guys who would rabble rouse to a new press in particular. But that takes guts. You know, a lot of coaches don't do that. You know, you could think about Pau Gasol with the Bulls, that he always started even when it wasn't the right fit, and he usually finished even though the, that wasn't necessarily the right fit either. And so it takes something to make that work. And whether it's confidence from management, whether it be his own kind of relationship with the players, Walton has been able to do that already. Oh, great point. And I think there's one more factor that's involved in that, and it's staring us right in the face, and it's the, the credibility that he built up in Golden State. It's a lot easier to sell a guy like Moskov on not finishing games when Luke Wong can point to the way that the Warriors finished games for two years, you know, and be like, look, this is how we did it. It worked. Including uh, so against get on board. <laughs> Yes, exactly right. That's, uh, even better. So, yeah, stare me right in the face, too. So I really do think that the credibility coming from a, a quote-unquote winning program, like as if this was college football, but having that level of credibility it helps. It definitely helps on day one because guys look at you and view you a different way because number one, you're a, you're a former player. You kind of get what they're going through. Number two, you're preaching that this is going to be like a 10 11 man operation. So everyone's going to play a role. Uh, and then number three, you can point back to previous successes, recent successes 
uh, and actually best practices really and say, Hey, this is what we're going to implement here. I know it works. You got to trust me. And it's just not that tough of a sell under those conditions. And something else that is not a tough sell, at least for me, is talking about Blue Apron. Blue Apron is a product that I have grown to really love over these past few months. And while I often talk about the idea of cooking confidence, and cooking confidence is certainly an important aspect of Blue Apron. It's something that has changed the way that I think about you know, spending my time cooking, and I've really enjoyed it. It also can broaden your horizons in terms of as a, as a diner, as an eater. And a great example of that for me is with seafood. So for pretty much my whole life, I haven't been the most, let's call it the most adventurous seafood eater, which has been immensely frustrating to my sister. My sister's a marine biologist and loves sustainably caught seafood. And Blue Apron is amazing with that, with following the the guidelines of Seafood Watch, which is done through the Monterey Bay Aquarium. And Blue Apron has fundamentally changed that. For example, this past week, had a sweet sweet chili glazed cod that also had a really nice squash and jasmine rice mix below it. And I don't know if for me, if it was just kind of that idea of sticker shock or that I was uncomfortable or had some, let's call them shaky experiences early on in life. But the idea of both preparing and eating seafood that is at an extremely high level that also has all of the environmental and ecological benefits that are so important to Blue Apron has fundamentally changed the way that I think about not only cooking, but about the way that I, I eat. And I went from somebody who, you know, when Blue Apron would start, maybe I would consider the seafood dish to almost always choosing it because it is a star in its own right. And you can try this out for yourself. You can go to blueapron.com slash real GM. And what I love the most about this offer is that it's, you get three meals for free plus free shipping. So you get you get to try out some great options. You get to see if you can love Blue Apron as much as I do, and there's no risk involved. Hopefully, you love it as much as I do, and then you can subscribe moving forward. It's less than $10 a person a meal, so it's very reasonably priced, especially for the incredibly high-quality ingredients that you get. So you go to blueapron.com slash realgm, three meals for free, including free shipping. Now back to my conversation with Ben Golliver. We started with the Lakers and Clippers, but I didn't really comment on them. They're playing incredibly well, and despite not going to the stagger that we've all hammered home for years, but they're getting really good quality out of their bench, so you you don't have to worry about that as much. And something that I think you, Kevin Pelton, and I discussed on the Pacific Division capsule for Real Jam Radio was the idea of the Clippers have never really had that best-case scenario regular season. And it's way too early to say that they're going to have it now, but we're getting sort of an indication of what that would look like if it can continue. Yeah, a couple things on the Clippers. I mean, number one, they clearly are exploiting their continuity advantage early in this season, right? Like San Antonio is kind of putting things together. Golden State's obviously putting some things together. You know, when you look at the Western Conference, like the Clippers core, although they made some really key additions to that second unit, you know, the Clippers core is basically back and they can operate with sort of like telepathic instincts and get through games and, and trust each other in ways that a lot of these other really top teams in the Western Conference can't. And so I think that's really helped them early. Eventually, I expect that kind of advantage to decrease once their teams kind of get up to speed. But I think, number two, the bench pieces fit better this year. And, you know, one guy in that podcast we talked about was Felton. And I know I was kind of campaigning for Felton as being a pretty important player. And, and maybe some other people were laughing about that. But anytime you're not relying on Austin Rivers to always have the ball in his hand, and you're kind of keeping Jamal Crawford in a pretty defined role in that second unit. I think those are positives. Not that I'm the world's biggest Raymond Felton fan at all, but I think by putting him out there, allowing them to go smaller, creates a lot more room for Austin off the dribble. And so those wild kind of crazy layups and drives and hard takes to the basket are a little bit more effective. And then you couple that spacing or, or that idea with you know, a most spades who is not going to be clogging up the paint necessarily. I mean, you could put him on the elbow or even farther out as kind of a release valve or just a guy who clears out. Uh, and now all of a sudden those guards are really able to kind of do what they do one-on-one, whether that's Crawford trying to break people down or whether that's trying to get all the way to the basket, get fouled, and, you know, score at the rim. So that mix has worked pretty well, and they seem like they've kind of got the chemistry with that group, you know, going pretty well early. And it's one of those situations where they've been, they've been carrying bad benches for so many years. 
and, and really atrocious benches that like all you really have to do is like upgrade from you know like a minus 10 to a minus six and that shows a big difference over the course of a game and, and that's kind of where they're at right now and that's true mentally as well because you know if you if a coach doesn't have faith that his bench can hold the lead you see that manifest itself all over the court and sometimes it can also lead to those guys losing confidence i saw that covering the warriors two years ago where steve kerr just absolutely did not trust his bench and i think that did spill over a little bit into those guys not trusting themselves something else that the clippers are informing which is something that i've thought for a long time and have praised rick carlisle and the mavericks for doing is that i'll frame it in the way that jim barnett who's the color guy for the color television analyst for the warriors has told it to me which is that when he used to play on the celtics they would do smalls versus bigs a lot and the small guys would always win and the reason for that is that especially once you move out of the starters those small guys can are capable of handling the ball they're capable of creating offense and generally the defensive stuff doesn't matter as much and so what the clippers are doing is they're just pushing that to the nth degree and basically saying hey if we can get points we'll probably do fine and they're right yeah absolutely and i think that they still haven't really reached their ceiling because i think offensively which is strange because i I kind of would have expected their offense to be ahead of their defense at this point just because those starters have blocked so many minutes together uh but you'll see like just random like chris paul deandre jordan like misconnections consistently over the course of games you'll see blake and deandre you know they'll they'll do that little high low lob and it, it won't quite hit you'll see J.J. Redick maybe toss a pass across court to a spot where he thinks Mbamute is going to be and Mbamute is not there. So, like, you know, they're still working out some of the rust with their offense. And so I think their their ceiling offensively as an entire team is actually higher than we've seen so far. And and really what they're really preaching, you know, in terms of their post-game comments and, you know, off-day comments and so forth is how happy they are with their defensive effort. And you can look at a couple different games. I mean, I don't know if you saw that game they played against the Jazz where they were up basically 20 most of that game. Now, granted, you know, Utah was missing some pieces. A couple guys were, you know, looking like they were playing a little bit limited health-wise. But they basically made Utah work for every single point they had. And, you know, they were able to shut the game down basically halfway through the fourth quarter because they were in such command. I thought they really frustrated Portland's offense, too, at times when they, you know, early season went up there. So, you know, you're looking at teams that, you know, potentially have some weapons on offense that are struggling against, you know, the Clippers defense. You could actually say the same thing for that game against San Antonio over the weekend, too, is San Antonio just never quite got things going. And so, you know, that's the most promising development really we've seen from the Clippers in a while here because we're always talking about their inconsistency. We don't trust them. Is this a playoff team and so forth? Well, if you could have a top three, top five defense and you could really consistently maintain that and you can maximize your ability on that end with guys who are all defensive caliber players so it's, you know deandre or or chris and obviously ambamity has got some pretty good credentials defensively although i wouldn't maybe put him at that level you've got some pieces there to do it and it seems like they're finally putting it together and, and some of that's got to be coming from doc saying like look guys you know we've been talking about getting this done for way too long it's time to actually go do it and they certainly have motivation considering the idea that this this might be the last run considering blake and cp can be free agents after this year deandre only has one more year jj reddick's a free agent so you know the idea of really giving it a run and taking advantage of their continuity is there and doc made a surprising to me choice with starting in bomb mute and the calculus i guess was that their offense would be good enough and that he would make a big impact defensively and it's not necessarily there against everything but the best example of it was against the spurs because he is their best guy to defend somebody like Kawhi leonard and you want to have somebody who is comfortable in that situation who has continuity with the starters when you get into the bigger game for sure and you know that is shaping up as a very interesting playoff matchup like if it comes down to two three spurs and clippers you know however that goes if I'm the Clippers at this point, I might actually like that matchup now. You know, that might work out because of exactly what you said is like you can really try to make Kawhi work, put too much pressure on him, and then you can trust that you've got too much athleticism, firepower. Be a, be a, be a, get... a different version of the Thunder, the team that the Spurs were snakebitten against. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, I think if you're the Clippers, you're feeling pretty good about that. Now, I think the big matchup question, though, is like, okay, well, if your best options in Bob Mute and you're trying to slow down the Warriors, that is... <laughs> That doesn't quite look as favorable under those conditions, right? That's certainly true. Uh, one team, just because you were talking about the idea of kind of surprising offenses and defense, is, is that I haven't watched, admittedly, a ton of them yet this year. But the Celtics having, you know, being pretty close in terms of offensive and def- defensive efficiency is not a surprise. That being because they have one of the league's best offenses and one of the world's league's worst defenses so far is a huge surprise. Yeah, I'm still in hold mode on the Celtics. You know, I don't think that they've quite 
I think Isaiah Thomas made a comment the other day of like, wow, we're not as good as we thought we were, or not as good as we said we were. And, and I think they're still trying to figure it out. Uh, you know, they had a fair bit of rotation turnover, although it was kind of guys maybe who were not headline guys, you know, so you got Solinger and Evan Turner, and obviously you're trying to plug in Horford, and I think he's kind of been in and out. Marcus Smart had the ankle. So there's like different things that are kind of going on there. So I, you know, I was very high on the Celtics coming in. I agree completely with what you just said in terms of there's kind of surprising on both sides a little bit, but I think we're going to pump the brakes on them because you know, there's just too many variables this early. I'm not going to rush the judgment on them quite yet. Yeah, and it's always hard when you're dealing with teams, let's say, you know, six, seven games in, just because you're also dealing with a sample of who they played and when they played them. Like, you know, yet Chicago, they got one of Chicago's best games because Boston was on it back-to-back, I think, off of their opener. And so you get sort of the, that kind of noise is a much bigger part of the sample at this point in the year. But you can also, that's why I like to focus in the very early time on kind of general through lines, because that, that that teaches you a lot more and I've been very impressed with the Cavs for the same reason that you said because we all saw you you and I were in the arena for the NBA finals and everything else like that that it was the finals were whatever you want to talk about for, for the surrounding factors irrespective of that it was a confirmation of their entire approach and LeBron's way of seeing the regular season and everything else. And and when you get a validation to that degree, I thought it was going to lead to an exaggeration on it because they, you know, Cleveland doesn't worry about anybody. And I don't think that they're pressing too much. Like when I watch them, I'm not seeing a team that's just gunning for it. That's, that's doing it. They're just better than everyone else. For sure. And uh, I think there's one factor that hasn't really been talked about this fall nearly as much. And it's amazing how quickly we move on from this. Uh, but take the contrast between this 2016 fall Cavaliers and the 2015 fall Cavaliers. And to me, it starts with the David Black factory, right? I mean, I think the vibe I always had from covering the Cavaliers during that postseason was that they just did not like that guy. His personality was not right. LeBron had no problem throwing him under the bus at, at, at various points throughout that uh, 2015 playoff run. And despite the fact that LeBron was kind of able to carry them all the way to the finals and get pretty close, at times it felt like he was doing it in spite of Blatt rather than kind of alongside Blatt. And that's not a knock on his ex as an O's as a coach. It's mostly a personality and kind of a a culture, locker room culture type of uh, issue. And I think what we saw, especially during the finals, was like those guys really like Ty Lue, you know? And there was always those jokes about, oh, maybe he's the real coach of the Cavaliers last year. Well, once he became the head coach of the Cavaliers, magically, you know, everybody seemed a lot happier. The chemistry seemed a lot better, and, and they started really performing to their peak abilities. And to me, part of the reason why they've hit the ground running this year is because they've kind of cleaned out the baggage. And they took care of J.R. Smith. I think that was a, a really important sort of symbolic move, finally getting that done. They brought everybody back. Uh, Kyrie and LeBron have kind of handled the interplay between the two of them brilliantly, I think, so far. Kyrie's looked, you know, really strong early in the season. So that puts them in a position where their talent, you know, they're just performing to their talent level night after night after night consistently. There's not those excuses that we've seen in the past, whether it's players not trusting each other, players not trusting the coach, whatever it might be. And they've got more talent than everybody. I mean, we've known that for a long time. It's like they've got a really, really talented roster uh, that fits together quite well. And so they're in a good groove. And I think LeBron looks to me like he's playing very free. You know, like there's not a lot of, uh, negative stuff on his mind, not a lot of distractions. You know, there's nearly as much attention on them this year as there was even last year or two years ago when he first went there. So it's kind of a nice place to be. And uh, I'm sure kind of like last year, he's kind of looking over and they, every time Golden State drops the game, he's probably chuckling about it because uh, you know, he realizes that he's not kind of in that inferno like uh, he, he hasn't been previously in his career. Yeah, it's so strange to have a season where LeBron isn't the central focus of the year. You know, like that's been basically my entire life covering the NBA. I've covered the NBA. This is my eighth <laughs> season. The entire time it has been about LeBron. LeBron's impending free agency. LeBron changing teams. LeBron winning his first title. And there's a reason for that. When you're the best player in the world, that's what it should be. And if, well, and also because yeah, of sure. his path. I mean, yeah, just sorry not to interject, but real quick, I think that was one of the underrated things from this summer, too, is LeBron going with the multi-year deal that plays into this because now we're not overanalyzing every little rift that they might have or every time somebody like, you know, bumps somebody or looks sideways at someone because there's not the threat that LeBron leaves next July. Everyone's done, you know, like JR's locked up, 
Tristan, Kevin Love, Kyrie, and that's the other big factor for them is that Kyrie missed the beginning of last year. We forget that now, but he was out. I think it was around Christmas, New Year's that he came back last year. You know, they, they muddled through. They did it. They did an impressive job, but you know, they they, had Del, they used Delvadova. He did well. They kind of found his found his step in that roster. But Kyrie is an incredibly good basketball player, and and they're getting that out. And something else that has been impressive to me. And it ties in because they beat them last night is the Atlanta Hawks defense is looking really good. Like the offense is still shaky, still still what it is. I still don't really believe in them necessarily as a playoff team, but we're seeing Budenholzer and the additions they made work as a regular season enterprise. Yeah, and that's not something that I necessarily saw coming. I, you know, there's skepticism with Dwight, but Dwight's when he's playing well, like he's a quality backline guy. I look at Millsap and I always think he should be in that all defense discussion. I always kind of joke, like one of my fetishes is players that get, you know, at least one steal and block per game. And Millsap's like consistently in that category. He just like gets up to stuff. Uh, you look, you know, Baysmore, lots of length there. I mean, you just go right and like you're mentioning, I mean, they've got a, a clearly defined way they want to play. Uh, and Boonholzer's got maximum authority over those guys. And he's got a lot of coachable players. So, uh, you know, Dwight coming in motivated, that was always the hope. You know, Dwight staying healthy, I think, continues to still be the hope there. But, yeah, Atlanta, they were one of the hardest teams for me to peg, actually, before the season. I didn't exactly know which way it was going to go. And I think, you know, if they're sitting on 5-2 and two with a win over Cleveland, that's basically their best-case scenario today, right? I mean, that's, like, their best reasonable-case scenario for how this uh, start could have gone. So, sure. and they're flying high, especially after they, you know, they, they make some pretty major changes, you know, losing Horford and also, you know, moving on from Teague. I mean, that's, you know, a lot of turnover in terms of minutes. And, you know, to get off to a pretty strong start, that's not bad at all. They need to stay healthy. Like, they, one of the consequences of losing depth, and I think even if you are positive on what they did, they still lost depth, you know, going from... Tegan Schroeder to Schroeder and Malcolm Delaney, you know, that's a big change. As, as much as Delaney, like when I've watched him, I think he's done pretty well. So that is something when you think about best case scenario, health is an important facet of that. But yeah, there is a lot of system continuity and th- it's really impressive to change your center when you're, and like we, I've talked about it, I talked about it on the show, Mike Prada had this idea of, you know, that they had to fundamentally change a lot of their defensive concepts just because Horford and Howard have such different strengths and weaknesses on that end. And they've done a really good job of it. Howard looks, he looks engaged. Like, you know, it's one of those circumstances where in sometimes, sometimes it's better to get that next contract with a new team because you have to prove yourself, especially considering it didn't really seem like the Rockets wanted him back. And so you get that motivation from that. And then if it goes well, then you get motivation from success. Yeah, I think the one thing we should mention probably with the Hawks is like they haven't had the world's hardest schedule. No. Uh, you know, they, they've, they, they've they stopped some, you know, win. They, they did beat the Cavs, I know. And I think that, you know, I definitely was focusing on that when I was kind of talking earlier. But you're know, looking back, I mean, they do have some pretty soft wins. So, and I think they've played more at home than on the road so far. So we'll see, you know, does that come back to earth, you know, their defensive rating come back to earth as they start to play more of these high power teams? Uh, I think that remains to be seen. But, I mean, like I said, it's a big difference going from Horford to Howard. No question about that. And that's one of the reasons why I was a little bit skeptical of them or at least kind of thinking before this season, like, well, this could go a lot of different directions, especially on offense. And I actually felt the defense stuff would probably come together more quickly just you know you've got in Dwight, especially when he's on the court. But, you know, offensively, they've been beat some pretty good offensive teams, whether it's Cleveland, Houston, and so forth. So uh, I think that they're, they're happy where they stand right now. I enjoy that the East... If you look at it kind of, let's say somebody like me who doesn't have great vision, if you took off your glasses and it was kind of blurry, the general structure is about what we would have expected, where it's like a couple, you know, Cleveland towards the top, a couple of other teams that look good, then just kind of this middle group that nobody can think of, and then maybe the Sixers and, you know, a couple other teams at the bottom. And that part of it is is largely true to me. Like, I I think that we don't really, I, I, I think that you can... It's not necessarily in terms of record, but just in terms of play. You know, there are a couple teams that have done well. Then the whole there's this whole morass in the middle, and the teams are filtering in different directions now. It's too early to make any determinations, but there is something satisfying about that fundamentally just being the status quo. I'm with you, and and that was actually a point I raised the other day when I was talking to Andrew Sharp because you know he's the Wizards guy. And I was kind of asking him like, look, when you look at these other teams that have already kind of raced to the bottom in the East, whether it's the 76ers, Knicks, Heat. Uh, Pacers have kind of struggled, and then the Nets, you know, they're probably overperforming a little bit at this point. When you look at that group, and Washington's right in the middle of that group, like, why do we expect Washington, who maybe came in, people were thinking that was going to be like a middle-tier type team, why are they going to magically, like, burst out of this bottom tier if 
we don't really expect any of those other teams in that bottom tier to do that. And so, you know, that's kind of place to your squint analogy is like, you know, if you're squinting at the Wizards and, you know, they're already behind teams like the Nets uh, and the Heat and the Magic, is it too early to panic for them? I mean, I'm not sure that it is. You know, I think, you know, it's, it's time to be really concerned if you're a Wizards fan. And yeah, and I think on the on the flip side of that, teams that could have been worried coming in, like Atlanta, we mentioned, another team that I was a little bit worried about coming into the season were Charlotte. You know, the fact that they've already separated a little bit, the, the bottom pack, you know, that's got to be, you know, a huge sigh of relief for those teams just because it's kind of validation for their offseason moves. In some cases, there's some pretty big investments there, and you wanted to see those pay off in year one. You know, I'm talking about Nicholas Batum and Marvin Williams and some of the money Charlotte spent, and, and same thing with Atlanta, you know, like we said, from Orford to Howard. This was the year to have those kinds of things work, and so far, so good. The Wizards are are in a tough spot because they have more talent than a lot of the teams that are slightly above them. But at a certain point, that stops mattering. And the other part is the internal factor. Like, we've, we both covered the league a while. You see it when a team is not performing to their own expectations. That can really matter because they start getting down on themselves. They start getting disappointed. And the Wizards haven't lost a ton of games that, like, they really should have won. I would say maybe the game at Orlando, just because the Magic were still looking to find themselves and everything else like that. But... What they need to do, what all of these teams in the East, if they want to be a playoff squad, what they need to do is just bare minimum win all of the games that you kind of should win. So a home game against like a shaky team in the East or the West, road games against teams like the Sixers, you know, if you can do that, you're in the conversation. Like, that's really all it's going to take at this point. You know, we, we don't know. Maybe the separation will be a little bit stronger than that. But I, I at this point, you know, if a, the, any teams that do that, and I think back to that game that Milwaukee blew against Dallas, picking up those kind of wins too. Like, if another team gives you a game or it's easier than it should have been, then you have to take it. For sure. Well, are you on board? I've rushed to this conclusion. I know it's like, you know, one day after election day, so we're pretty early in the NBA season, but I think I'm pretty much ready to punt on Wall at Beal. I don't know if that's going to ever work to the way that it should. And like the contrast to me with like the Lillard McCollum pairing, right? How important is chemistry if you've got two ball dominant guards, two playmaking guards? Uh, in Portland, you see those two guys, they basically act like BFFs. They're not concerned with the my turn, your turn. They do a pretty good job of sticking to shot selection that is their hot spots, places they know that they can really perform efficiently, and that's going to be sort of a team benefit, right? Like, it's not wasted possessions. And I look at the wall of Beal pairing, I'm not sure if they have any of those things and how many years together. And I know it's it's kind of compromised because Beal's been in and out of the lineup, but you have to factor that into account, especially when it comes to the chemistry and personality factor. You know, I'm starting to wonder, like, you know, if they continue to struggle here uh, going forward, and they're probably committed to Wall as their main guy, at least they should be, I wonder, given some of the contract decisions they're going to have to make here coming up, you know, whether it's next year or, or beyond, I wonder if that pairing is not as long-lasting as we kind of have assumed it would be. There are a couple of important differences between... I I like that you brought up Lillard McCollum, and part of it is also that I think Lillard and McCollum have both outperformed their expectations and are both doing very well. And while, you know, had sky-high talent, his athleticism's amazing, you know, the passing ability, he hasn't improved by as much as I think a lot of us hoped and expected that he would. And Beal's the same way. You know, Beal, talented guy, drafted top five in a, a weird kind of draft. But if for him, it's still more potential than production. It's just kind of the way that he's gone on that. And... Wall is a different kind of point guard. You know, Lillard and Stephen Curry and a couple of those other guys are more of the, I can create for myself and I can create for others. And part of John Wall's problem at this point is that he's far better creating for others than for himself, but he still thinks of himself as somebody who can score. And sometimes he takes, I I was thinking about, I can't remember which one of the games it was, where I said I was going to hate watch all of his shots because Wall just has that (laughs) in him. You know, confidence is a great thing, except when it's kind of ill-suited. And that isn't to say that he needs to be that guy who, like Ricky Rubio, who basically runs away from his jump shot far too much. I don't think that at all. But when it's not falling, you need to be ready to trust your teammates and move away from it, especially when teams generally give Wall respect. You know, if, if teams don't respect it, that's kind of where that dividing line is. Rajon Rondo is maybe the best example of this in the league. You know, you have to shoot enough that they respect it, but not so much that they kind of laugh it off. 
Yeah, totally. I mean, it, it just still seems like his, his diet is not where it needs to be in terms of shot selection and decision-making. And they're, what, bottom five, bottom six in offensive efficiency right now. And when you watch their games, that's exactly what they look like. I mean, that's, and there's, yeah, and yeah. There's a funny parallel in this. So I was looking at the point guards in terms of PER, you know, not an end-all, be-all stat, but a useful point of reference when you, as long as you're comparing guys within it. So of the top 10 point guards in PER, there are a lot of different offensive profiles. You can think about somebody like CP or Steph Curry or George Hill, who is kind of taking on a different role with Gordon Hayward being out. And I'd love to talk about the Jazz a little bit. But the only two guys that are kind of, well, and Lynn, if we're counting him, that are kind of in this like lower tier in terms of efficiency, like true shooting percentage, are Westbrook and Wall. And they really do fit that same mold of guys who are exceedingly talented, who definitely make their teams better, but sometimes just kind of get a little bit carried away and sometimes can't get out of their own way. And while you can't rein that in because it takes away some of what makes them great, you also kind of, if for people like me and probably like you, you sit there and go, oh, well, what if just a little bit more than we probably should? Totally. Hey, do you, you want to talk about the Jazz? Because I think going back to one of our off-season podcasts, I, I think we said we called it like the rock-paper-scissors race in the Northwest Division where like you could kind of make cases for Portland, Utah, or Oklahoma City. And I feel like 10 days in, that's more true than ever. Like You can make cases for all three of those teams, maybe even better cases than you could have made over the summer for them winning that division. Yeah, and yeah Utah, that, that's a good point. Utah's I, I like really an interesting spot. Yeah, I, I've been very yeah. impressed with them. The idea, because they, they started the season with adversity. You know, they were dealing with favors, being limited. I think even missed a couple games. Gordon Hayward just came back. And what happened was they kind of got to use their depth early and get guys confident, get guys in more comfortable roles, and they can work from that. And sometimes it'll be hard for expectations, you know, that you have to start shifting that around. They also miss Boris Diaw for a while, too. And so that helped get guys, you know, a little bit more confident, helped help their players get into roles. But there's just so good. Like, they have a lot of talent. They have depth at every position. And even if a player like Dante Exum doesn't work out exactly as they hoped, big whoop. Shelvin Mack was doing well. George Hill's been a monster. For sure, yeah. They're just kind of covered. Like, they got all the bases covered. I'm glad that Hayward came back fairly early uh, when he went down when training camp or whenever it was uh, preseason. I got really nervous, probably overreacted nervous. I think they still have some issues with can they generate the best shots late in games? I think that's sort of still an issue and that ties into their overall clutch numbers and all that. But George Hill has been a complete revelation for them. We, I expected that to be a good move. I think it's been a great move so far. You mentioned Dial. I mean, they're getting by with Dial looking like, you know, in the games he's played to me, he barely looks like an NBA player. So I think he, it's an injury-related thing probably with him. Against the Clippers, he's throwing the ball all over the court and, uh, you know, just looking really, really slow. So I think, you know, he's still got, you know, much more than he's been able to show. They haven't gotten anything from Burks yet, and I think he's an interesting change-of-pace guy for them and, and kind of gives them an injection uh, of a little bit of uh, off-the-dribble stuff that they've missed. Hood settled in nicely. Looks like he's taking another jump. Uh, and their defense is, you know, more or less kind of what we expected. I think they can probably still play even better defensively than they have. You know, I think they're a top 10 right now. And I think, you know, I still expect them to be kind of a top five defensive unit. So, you know, you add all of that up and that's the case for them. But then you look at Portland and Oklahoma City and like you can make really strong cases for them, too. It's like Portland, they've probably been shakier than people expected, but they're still right there record wise. Uh, and, and Damian and, and CJ, like you mentioned, are really playing to their capabilities. And that's what's going to drive that team. And then you look at Oklahoma City, and, and Russell's just finding a way. And he stayed healthy, and uh, the other guys are giving just enough for them to sort of uh, you know, be uh, you know, a team that nobody, I think, is going to want to play in the playoffs uh, in the first round, and then also just a team that's going to potentially go over on their win total maybe in a way that I didn't expect. So all three of those teams have been really fun to watch. Like, it's hard not to watch any of those three teams play on any given night. It's like you just want to watch their games every single time. Oklahoma City's defense has been so much better than I thought it would be. Like you had all these, you had all these guys. They had, of course, Stephen Adams, big fan of his, thought that he could be the anchor. 
and they had a lot of shooting problems. Like I, I was questionable, questioning their offense, and you know that has largely been borne out. They've gotten enough. I think just enough is is a good way to put it. But they've been trying really hard on defense. They've been using their length, using their athleticism, and they don't have a ton of continuity. I mean, when you lose Kevin Durant, you lose one of the centers of your team, and they had a lot of kind of turnover around that, just in kind of filling the spots. They traded Serge Ibaka, and like you think about all those other things. I think some of that will come back to earth, but that's interesting. And then the other thing, uh, the way I'm approaching the Jazz is that they have two basic kind of identity questions. So one is, are they a top 10 defense or are they a top five defense? So that is one part. And then offensively, are they a top half or are they a top 10? So if you get the best case scenario on both those, you're talking about one of the you know five or so best teams in the league. If they go on the negative side, you're probably a low end playoff team. And we'll just have to see. It's close enough with all those teams in that mix that it's probably going to take until the new year, maybe the all-star break to really know for sure. But it's encouraging that the general organizational structure of how I thought about them is about right. For sure. So real quick on the Thunder, I mean, we should mention, I think their schedule has been pretty soft too. So yes. I think their defensive I mean, rating probably... game it, was really impressive. Like they, they just, it was. they and, mucked and, up that game. That's exactly what I was going to say too, is like, that was an, uh, an ugly slugfest and to have Russell kind of win it and, and pull it out and have their defense hold up was shocking. I mean, that was just kind of a weird game. I feel like that was probably the worst game CP's played all year. So that, I mean, they've got a quality win there for sure. I do think that their defense is probably... Like their defensive efficiency rating overstates their defensive ability. But I think that overall, when you're able to hit the ground running after losing Kevin Durant, when everybody expects you to take this big step back, when you're able to coalesce around Westbrook and his personality, you know, it, it says a lot about their management. Like Sam Presti, he's a polarizing guy, but, you know, his basic principles of, you know, looking for guys who are going to be committed to the team concept, who are going to be super hardworking players, who are going to do the little things who are going to fit around his stars, you know, who are going to be sort of up and coming with, with things to prove, you know, not necessarily like hanging on to veterans too long. You know, those things have gotten him into trouble, you know, like, you know, not paying James Harden, obviously that got him into, you know, a lot of criticism, not being able to you know, keep Kevin Durant moving on from Sergi Baca. Some people might've thought that was a bad move. I think most online uh, analysts kind of co-signed on that one, but in general, when you're able to kind of not skip a beat, after taking such a big hit and to refashion your identity so quickly and to do it on the defensive end right out of the gate, like that to me says really strong structure and all those things that Presti's been preaching for year after year after year are kind of coming to fruition here and in a way that maybe I didn't expect right off the bat. I wanted to take a quick moment to talk to you about Audible. So we'll end this on a different note, and so I'm going to ask one more question before we get into the last team, and I think you know where I'm going to go with it because of my obligations. But who have you just enjoyed watching the most so far this year? Oh, man, that's a good question. Being someone who's watched Kevin Durant really closely, basically since his first game in the league, you know, back to the Seattle days, uh, it's been really interesting and not what I expected, how things have played out with Golden State. So I would put that, that you know, them real near the top of the list just because he's looked so comfortable. He's kind of had this like takeover effect where he's kind of been the centerpiece for a lot of what they're doing offensively. And it's kind of come at the expense of people in ways that I, I didn't necessarily expect. Obviously, you know, the well-documented, you know, some part shooting on, uh, from a lot of people has contributed to that. But how quickly he's looked comfortable in his new environment, how quickly he's been able to be the main guy there for long stretches, that came together faster than I thought it would. And the, I thought the most entertaining game, even though it was a blowout, was their, their game against Oklahoma City, just because it, it kind of seemed to me like it got the closest to what we expected in terms of warrior ceiling so far during the regular season thought you know the, the Steph Curry explosion the other night against the Pelicans had a similar vibe but you know the competition level was a little bit different there but you know Durant on a rampage is about as entertaining as the NBA gets and so I, I put them in that mix uh past them I think all three of those teams in the Northwest Division that I mentioned have been really fun the Rockets are really fun to watch in person they're just kind of chaos team um going back to opening night seeing them you know it's like i can't remember a game where i saw more uncontested dunks and layups by both teams in that lakers rockets game but you know that's why people like all-star games right uh, same same kind of principle it's why i hate uh, all-star of- games <laughs> Because oh, it yeah. just gets no, so frustrating. Yeah. I, I was going to mention this. A week from the day we record this is going to be Rockets Thunder. And I think that's just going to be such a strange, <laughs> just a strange game. Can I give you a couple before we can go back and forth a little bit? But So for me, I'll echo the ones that you've said. Those are all good. But I've really enjoyed Denver. Denver is a team, every year there are a couple franchises that just 
they get in this mode where I, I kind of call it, to, to make an old school wrestling reference, I call it like a Shawn Michaels team, where they get a good match out of everybody. And it doesn't always mean they win. They just get a good match. And so, like, Denver had that, they had a crazy game on Tuesday night against Memphis. They had that insane comeback the Blazers had on them. And so Denver just is <laughs> yeah. in a lot of fun games. They have this weird combination of young guys. They're playing two seven-footers. I've enjoyed that. And then there are three teams that I really only watch when their guy is on the floor. But when this guy is, I'm just transfixed. And that's the Sixers with Embiid, the Pelicans with AD, and the Kings with Boogie. All three of those teams, when those guys are on the floor, I'm if I it's a night where I'm at home and I'm watching games, I'm on it. And if they're not, I just kind of see how it falls apart. But I find those three guys just the what they're dealing with so interesting. No, I hear you. Another team similar to Denver, I think, kind of for some of the same reasons as Phoenix. Like Phoenix will just constantly throw you weird loops. You know, they had a crazy game with the Blazers too. They're just always up to something. You never know quite what you're going to expect. Evan Booker's like throwing shots off. For sure. You know, Devin Booker throws that one shot off the top of the backboard. That goes in. You know, he's going he's going nuts for, like, step-back jumpers. He's super low-percentage shots that he just, you know, already has a knack to kind of hit some of those. So they're fun. The Nuggets, for whatever reason, they kind of frustrate me. They're like the, the blood pressure team for me. And, you know, choking a couple ga- games down the stretch, I think, maybe is, is part of it. Uh, Moutier's huge quarter, you know, that was one of the most entertaining quarters, I think, uh, we've seen from anybody this season. So, you know, I hear you on that one. I haven't quite got onto the Joe LMB hype train yet. Uh, I mean, I'm seeing what he's doing. I'm watching a lot of it. I think it's just a mental block with how unsuccessful they've been in terms of wins and losses that it's hard for me to sort of, you know, quote unquote, fall in love with his ceiling and and also some of the health related uh, pessimism. I think that's just kind of in the back of my mind all the time with him. So, you know, maybe that's more on me than on him. But I I see a lot of people agreeing with what you said about the Sixers. Issue the kind of the way to think about Embiid is a matter of perspective. It also depends on your background as a basketball fan. So I'm somebody who loves big man defense and who loves big man play. And I think what's been so surprising about Embiid is that defensively he is that center guy. You know, he's a rim protector. He can shot. He can shot block. He's a good rebounder and all that. And then offensively, you know, so you think about those guys who do that. Rudy Gobert is probably the best example of it to a degree. Clint Capella, though Clint Capella isn't nearly as stout. Like, Embiid is more that traditional center physically. But what's so weird about him and why part of the reason the Sixers haven't been, you know, what they're going to be eventually is that his offensive game is completely separate from that. He is not a traditional big man that way. His his footwork is still good, but he's still figuring it out. It's kind of like a mechanic who has all the right tools and toolbox but just doesn't know how to use them and which one to use to fix the thing at the at a given time he's still in that mode and then he's also like I'm just going to shoot a three just at certain moments. And that takes time to figure out. You know, you think about the the years that he lost, that has a bigger impact on offense just because he has to work within a team concept and everything. And when you're a center on defense, if you just put your arms up and you block a bunch of shots, that'll work. You can make that work with almost anybody. And offensively, they just have to figure it out. But what is encouraging to me about the Sixers and about the Nuggets is that those are both teams that in a just world would not have immediate pressure to win. It's a lot more frustrating for me, and I get stressed out with a team like the Wizards, where they need to win and they're not winning. You know, if the Nuggets have a season of moral losses, that's not the worst thing in the world. If the Wizards do, everyone gets fired. And so for me, those, those for are the sure. ones that are, that are blood pressure for me. It's like when a team is really, you know, when you can feel that building up and you can feel that it's just like the season from hell. I used the term last year before the season on the Suns of disaster potential, and that's exactly what happened. And those are the ones that get my blood pressure going just because I know having covered it, having been around the league, what that can mean. And so you start to see, you know, we talked about Wall Beal and those those kind of circumstances. We're not all the way there yet. And then the other one, and this is where the Pacers might end up, is the one where things aren't going well, but you can't do anything about it. Like, I just get super uncomfortable watching those teams. And I'm not saying Indiana is going to be there necessarily, though that is has been my feeling since they made their summer acquisitions, is when, like, a team is disappointing and you're just sitting there going, well, crap, what do we do now? 
like Orlando might be in this boat too, where it's, you know, Serge Ibaka is going to be a free agent. You can't just like let him go. You can't, I mean, maybe you can try to trade him and figure all this stuff out, but that's really, those are the ones that I just start getting uncomfortable with. And I sometimes even stop watching them because I just, it just makes me feel anxious. Yeah, I was going to say that the Wizards have pretty much moved out of that blood pressure category for me to just like the tune-off category. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. I mean, I like, yes, they have to do all those things. Yes, it's going to be a lot of blood spilled. If this doesn't work out, they're going to have to consider changes to their cores and, you know, like all sorts of things. But they've been through that blood pressure situation for like the last three years and so or two or three years. And like, you know, guys get together at some point or, you know, eventually I'm just going to check out on you. And uh, but your point is well taken on Denver. Like there's no real expectations on Denver this year. As long as Moutier makes a step forward and as long as they can get Harris back and those three guards can kind of start to build a chemistry and and, you know, Jokic can continue to dazzle. Like, that's basically their season, right? Uh, and that is going to lead to a lot of fun times along the way just because it's young players who are each in their own way, you know, a little bit different than, you know, some of the other guys in their position. So, you know, I do feel bad for, like, a coach like Michael Malone in that situation because there's going to be a lot of heart, heartbreaking losses along the way uh, where you, you look back and you think, okay, maybe they win, what, you know, 30, 35 this year, and, and if things had broken right, they could have been 500, and he'll probably keep him up at night. But, you know, for the, the casual fan watching them, uh, yeah, they're going to deliver on, on entertainment, or at least they should. Yeah, and, and with them, you have to hope that ownership and the coaching staff are in the right place, that they can react to this with the, okay, it's a step in the, it's a step in it, you know, crawl, walk, run, that sort of idea of team building. And because they have other, like, draft assets, this is a team that can do that. But also the Nuggets have been fascinating to me because of the idea of, do they want to be buyer sellers or both? And a disappointing season makes that, if it happens that way, makes it more interesting because Gallinari, Fareed, you know, all these guys that I don't consider central pieces of their the next great Nuggets team, my hope was always that they would trade those guys, you know, that they would really embrace this and go that way. And I understand why they had the idea of if this all works out, we can do that. And they're still, they could still win 40, 45 games. This, it's not foreclosed on in any way, shape or form. But I always thought that the best thing for them long term was to move those guys. And, you know, I'm not sure they, they're doing enough to get to that point, but it's interesting. Yeah, for sure. And I think they're probably still heading that direction, but you don't have to race towards that, you know? Yeah. You can kind of let that unfold, and I think that's sort of their mode right now. So, yeah. But I, I think that, you know, between the two of us, I think we named like 15 of the teams that we like to watch. So yeah, but that, that's like how that good the league is right now. And and so the the last team that we have talked about, you already mentioned it a little bit in terms of your favorites to watch, is the Golden State Warriors. And so I'll, I'll start it with a question and basically just, are they meeting your expectations? Are they differing from them in some way? No, they're below my expectations, I think, at this point. But that's a factor of having very high expectations. I mean, I thought that they would potentially have the ability to have the best offensive efficiency of all time. And we definitely have not seen anything close to their sixth gear as a team yet. Uh, And I think most of the people know why. I mean, Clay, Steph kind of being a little bit more hit or miss uh, at times, figuring how things are going to work out with Durant the second unit chemistry, maybe Iguodala's half step behind or, or more than where he was last year. And then the center position, which I think is their most serious question, uh, or at least, you know, the rotation, how they're going to handle that kind of matchup wise and so forth. I mean, that's a, a lot of questions to work through right off the top of the season. So they're behind my expectations, but that's just because, you know, I expected them to be six and one, seven and oh, and they're not there, but I don't think it's panic time at all. And I think the, the best reminder that it shouldn't be panic time is that, you know, Steph's streak gets snapped. And then the very next night he comes down and hits 13 threes. And it's like, okay, well, <laughs> Steph's still really, really, really good. You know, historically great three-point shooter who can uh, blow a team off the map in, you know, a, a four-minute stretch. He's going to get to that level more consistently than he's been there so far this season. Even if he doesn't have as good of a year as he had last year, if you get 90 or 95% of Steph compared to that, you're still talking about an MVP caliber player and you've got another one already kind of locked in doing his thing. So, you know, history says if you got two MVP type players on your team at the same time, you're going to be really good. So I'm not in any way panicking or super concerned about how it's looked, uh, but it hasn't quite come as easily as I thought it might. They're meeting my expectations for a very basic reason, which is that for me, the early part of the season is about flashes not about sustained brilliance, and the flashes have been there. You know, there have been a few few moments in that Oklahoma City game, in that Portland game, where you're just sitting there going, oh my god, how is anyone going to beat these guys? I remember I did a podcast with the Lockdown Blazers guys after that game. It was just like, they were kind of just sitting there going, well, that happened. 
And I understand that. Like, I, I think that's sort of where this team can go. However, the, what is important and what is maybe different from expectations was that while the center position, the traditional center position, is not a huge part of the answer to the question that really matters, which is how this team wins a title, because they'll be marginalized in the playoffs, just like Bogut was, just like Festus Zazili was for most of the time, and Kerr should have done that more. You want to have at least one guy that you're comfortable giving 15 to 20 minutes a game to, even in that circumstance. And it's becoming less clear that that person is one of their guys they expected it to be. You know, Pachulia, I think, has more to give offensively, but his defensive flaws might not be as correctable. David West has some moments. He's more of kind of like that second traditional center. And so if you get that spot, then maybe you can fill that in. And so Kerr can resolve that by just not having a primary big guy later. But that ties in with the second question was that Andre Guadala looks a little bit off and it's not as much the offensive stuff. He's missing shots. He's missing layups. That happens. But defensively, he's not as crisp as he's been before. And once you start to lose that a little bit, you can do that. And Kevin Durant can make up for some of that. You know, maybe you're going to use Kevin Durant more on the Kawhi's the LeBrons of the world. And Durant has expressed a willingness to to handle that and to shoulder that role, especially considering his offensive niche can change around with time. But that does fundamentally change this team a little bit in terms of ceiling because you need either one of the centers or Iguodala to really work to get your best five-man lineup. And that's not completely sure, but when you see the ceiling stuff like we've seen so far, I don't worry as much about the low floor like they showed in that terrible third quarter against the Pelicans, the entire Lakers game, and various other moments because they have 82 to figure that out. Yeah, I mean, they didn't really care about that Lakers game. No. Like, yeah, I don't even they also that. missed, like, I don't even every shot. Them. Like, you know, you, you yeah. it, it, was, no, I, it, was, it was a variance game in both ways. Like, you had the apathy part of it, and you had the bad shooting, and it was just that, that kind of perfect storm of just things that can go wrong. Yeah, I definitely don't hold that Lakers game against them. I was at that one, and I was like, well, that was, you know, the stamps on that one. That was a mail-in job. So here's my thing with Zaza, though, and, and the Iguodala factor, like you're mentioning. Going into both of the last two playoffs and even – the final series. When it came to a matchup perspective, I always favored Golden State because I felt like they had more options. Like they could they could go big, they could go small better than any team that they were going to face. And eventually that should help carry them through. Uh, that theory got tested a little bit, especially in the finals once they started dropping guys to get from injury, suspension, and so forth. And it was definitely tested in the Western Conference Finals just because of pretty insane performances early in that series from Westbrook and KD and you know just some pretty energetic play overall by Oklahoma City. But as I go ahead looking at this roster as it's currently constructed, I'm not sure I feel that same way in a series against Cleveland. I think that the matchups and the versatility in terms of different looks at this point favors Cleveland compared to Golden State because of that issue that you're talking about with who are their best five guys, how often can they turn to those guys, and then how can they adjust out of that look once Cleveland gives them something different. And so I guess my big question is how many minutes can Zaza really give you in a series against the Cavaliers? And then if you have to go small all the time with Draymond as your center, how sustainable is that? And then if Iguodala is not your you know, rock-solid fifth guy in that small look, do we have to recalibrate their ceiling as a, as a team? So that, that's sort of where my concern comes from. And I, I kind of wonder, you know, are they going to make a move here before, you know, the end of, you know, the trade deadline and buyout season and all that? Like, is there going to be uh, an injection to that front court that helps solve some of that? Or are they going to pray that a guy like Looney can, can help out? I mean, I don't really know what their other options are. And so I think at this point, uh, although I, I still, you know, picked them to win the, the finals before the season, so I'll stick with that. And I think that's a reasonable concession we have to make at this point. Is like, you know, matchup wise, who's their best five, and then does Cleveland enter that series feeling like they can do more things against the Warriors than the Warriors can do against them? The versatility is an issue, and I mean, a big difference will be, you know, if Curry and Durant can be at that form, but. And also, the, the other part of it is that I have less confidence after last year that Kerr will necessarily choose the right thing if it's there. You know, like last year, he felt so... Yeah. He, he used the security blanket in Game 7 of traditional bigs in Azili and Verjao even after they got killed. And there were a lot of, you know, it's kind of the idea of contributory negligence. There are a lot of things that led to them losing, particularly Game 7. But that was one of them. And you have to use the evidence that you have to analyze and predict the future. So I can't be totally sure that Kerr is going to, let's say, Zaza's getting smoked on LeBron, Tristan Thompson pick and rolls, that he's going to move away from that and say, okay, we need to go small from the beginning of the game, and maybe we're going to need to do it for 35, 40 minutes. Yeah, and like if you're constructing a team to beat the Warriors' small lineups from a defensive standpoint, like having LeBron and Kyrie and Tristan all putting constant pressure on the rim, each in their own way, 
is the way that you do that. You know, I mean, and, and having shooters who are always there to make you pay if you're if you're overhelping back into the paint. Uh, I mean, that is a team that's constructed to just punish small defensive lineups uh, in lots of different ways. And so that's you know that's part of one of the reasons why you know I'd be a little bit more nervous this time around than the two previous times if I was Golden State, just because. Guys like Bogan and Azili really being trustworthy back there uh, and giving you lots of minutes to kind of just sop up over the course of a seven-game series and, and kind of take stuff away from LeBron just by their presence. If you're really relying lots and lots of minutes over the course of the game on Draymond as your center, you know, even with you know, KD as you know, a pretty long and kind of uh, rim-protecting or interior-helping force, uh, they've got the, the personnel to really make that, to really stretch those guys and to really push them. And so uh, I think if you played the finals right now, I'd take the Cavs. And, and that, I'm sure, will change maybe two or three times, maybe five times. I'll change my mind between that now and June. But, uh, you know, if I'm Cleveland, I'm feeling pretty good about where Golden State's uh, weaknesses are. Their weaknesses are concerning, but I think I'm still in the mode that the war- I think the Warriors are the favorites because the strengths will get so much better with time. And the the idea, the word that I've been using in my head a lot this season, both for these two teams and overall, is the idea of undeniability. And so it's like when you are at your best, can you be stopped? And both Cleveland and the Warriors can make that as a capable argument. I'm sure the Clippers are hoping to get into that group, but really that's kind of the question. And then it's who can play at that level for longer. And I just, just because I've seen Durant for moments of time do it, and I've seen Curry do it, that if, if those two guys are healthy, I think that that's a bigger, a bigger structural component, but it's certainly fair to argue it the other way, even though I still disagree. Yeah, no, I think, sorry to clarify, I think if we played the final series right now, I would take Cleveland. I would I'm too. still picking the Warriors. I'm okay. still picking the Warriors in, in June. Okay. That, that, uh, yeah, I'd, I'd have it the same way for right now. Yeah. And I agree. I mean, I, Golden State, clearly their ceiling is still higher than anybody else's ceiling. Uh, and we've gotten, like you were saying earlier, to tie it all the way back, we've gotten some flashes. We've gotten flashes of Durant at, like, fully motivated, like, world-shattering Durant. And we've got flashes of Curry being, you know, lights-out Curry where there's just no answer for him. There's no defensive scheme that's going to stop the 13 three-pointers. I mean, there's just nothing that's going to ever work against that. We've gotten those flashes, and as those become more consistent as those become more of the norm as they start making that run up towards the top of the offensive efficiency charts which you know I think we would all predict is going to happen then you know their ability to kind of push back against what Cleveland does uh, is going to become you know easier to envision but right now uh, I'd give it to the Cavs. I know we've talked long enough but is there anything else you think we should discuss? Uh, I think we covered a lot man it was a good conversation I feel like you know it was exactly, it was a cleansing experience after the election last night and going through the shock and awe of that. And it was good to talk hoops and, and get back into it. So I appreciate you for that. You know, we'll see where it goes forward. I'm going to see Clippers Blazers tonight, which should be fun. Uh, and then Lakers Kings tomorrow night. So I think I'm going to get two, two, two good games here in 48 hours and, and uh, we'll be on our way. I'm excited if we get Julius Randle trying to defend DeMarcus Cousins for some time, just because I want to see how that goes. Randle, Randle is very competitive, and I just don't see that working out for him. So I think that could be a good... I always like to see how young players handle a challenge, and the Lakers are going to start having that a little bit more. I thought they were going to have that against the Warriors, but nope. I also like to see how stars punish mismatches. And in Cousins' case, uh, I don't know if you saw that Raptors game. Oh my God, he was like yeah. he was enjoying life uh, without Valanciunas in that game, and, and maybe we'll get a similar situation against the Kings, but or uh, sorry, against the the Lakers. But that's to be determined, and, and something definitely a game to circle on your uh, on your calendar for sure. Absolutely. Well, thanks so much for taking the time. Thanks, Danny. Thanks again to Ben Golliver for taking the time. Of course, you can read him at Sports Illustrated. You can listen to the Open Court podcast that he does, and you can also follow him on Twitter, at Ben Golliver. That's B-E-N-G-O-L-L-I-V-E-R. I apologize for not mentioning in the introduction that we did record this a little less than a week ago It through my own kind of mitigating factors and everything else. I didn't get to edit this until Monday, so... A little bit changed after that, um, especially a little bit of the Warriors' pessimism because they played well the last couple nights. But definitely something that was fun to do with Ben and love talking with him. And hopefully we will continue to do that fairly frequently over the course of the year. And it was funny to have a little bit of a time constraint because of our own availabilities last week to make it only an hour conversation. Because those of you who've listened to this podcast for a while know that he and I can go on for a while, which I consider an unambiguously good thing because I love talking to Ben. But it was different to do that. And so now we're getting really into 
the regular season for Real Jam Radio. Going to try to go in a lot of different directions. Still waiting a little bit to see what teams become the stories. That's often something I like to do towards the end of November is to go through and really assess, you know, okay, who do I want to talk to and picking out teams. I've talked, you know, with like James Ham involved with the Kings in other years and various other writers that I'm fortunate enough to know around the country. And so that will be a process over the next couple of weeks, also toying with some kind of bigger picture ideas just because I enjoy doing that and got some really good feedback in terms of doing more draft podcasts, people like Sam Vecini and everything else. And so I am going to try to make that a more regular component of this, especially for for kind of personal reasons in a way as well. It is a way to connect with that more regularly. So still haven't figured out a structure or form or anything like that. And while nothing is totally set in stone yet, I am also toying with the idea of making Real GM not rigidly a weekly show. And what I mean by that is throwing in an an extra episode from time to time, especially if we can get to the mode where we can get more regular advertising. That's something that's great for me. Some of that is, you know, a set number of times per month. Other ones, it's a little bit more piecemeal than that. So it will depend on other obligations, you know, writing for The Athletic. You can check that out, Real GM, Sporting News, and then, of course, doing the Dunked On podcast, Locked On Warriors, and now the new Twitter NBA show, which is a probably once a week to start, show that I'm doing with Nate Duncan through Twitter and Periscope, where we will be doing a live halftime show and then postgame show of one of the days with the big national game. So that is going to be very exciting. I am working on a write-up for Real GM about it, which will hopefully be up by the time many people listen to this. So if you want a little bit more substance on that, we will be able to give it there. And thank you to everybody for the support. It really does mean a lot, not only with that, but really with everything. It's been a great run so far, admittedly a little tiring, but that's the way it goes sometimes. And really looking forward to making this whole picture a reality with everything. And if you want to support this show, you can subscribe, download every episode. Really do appreciate that. Also, you can let me know if there is a podcast player or something like that that we are not in that you feel like we should be. You can let me know. It is a factor. Of course, there are other complicated things that we have to consider with all that, but it is something that I really do appreciate knowing. And so the other thing you can do is leave a rating, leave a review, and check out our sponsors. And I love it in these cases when for Blue Apron and for Audible, not only are they things that I I personally use and personally enjoy, but the offers that are involved in this have no cost to you. So with Blue Apron, you go to blueapron.com slash realgm, and you get a three free meals, including free shipping. So if you like it, great. If you don't, then real no, really no harm, no foul. I am completely convinced that you will like it. It has fundamentally changed the way that I think about food. And I, I don't just say that to try to sell their product. I say that because I genuinely believe it. And Audible is an amazing service just in terms of audio content that you can't really get other ways. And as somebody who both produces and consumes an unreal amount of audio content, I appreciate the special effort that they go through. So you can go to www.audible.com slash try now. You can check it out. You get a free audiobook, get a free month and see if it's right for you, especially if you are somebody who has a commute. I personally find that while podcasts are great and I, I listen to a lot of podcasts, audiobooks can be a nice piece of continuity and kind of bring a little bit of uh, a little bit of center net, centrality and also a consistent story is kind of fun. I think that's something that I enjoy and audiobooks, whether it be in the comedy realm or drama or fantasy, whatever you like, can really do that and they have some great material on there. So you can do all that kind of stuff. You can also follow me on Twitter at Daniel LaRue, reach out NBA at gmail.com. I try to read everything, respond to what I can. As many of you know, my response rate is often terrible, but it is a response rate. I do try to get back to everybody, but often it takes some time. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.